Welcome to Legville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Legville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Legville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. Support for the podcast also comes from Elsa's. Elsa's is now welcoming you inside for good drinks, good food, and good conversation in the heart of the Plateau Montréal. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likefillpodcast.com. Without further ado, Here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Lakeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today I have the great honor of talking again with our friend Stephen Marsh, um, somebody we've been on the podcast numerous times, about his new book, The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. Welcome, Stephen. Hi, John. How are you doing? I'm uh, I'm doing great. Uh, not thanks to your book, <laughs> My God, this is, uh, I just finished reading it a second time in anticipation of this conversation. And just so our our listeners understand, we're talking now, it's December 9th. Um, This episode will not be released until uh, probably January 6th, which is when your book is officially coming out. Um, But yeah, it's... um, it's very bleak. I mean, it's very bleak. And it's it's funny because we were messaging this morning on, on Facebook and we were talking about people from Alberta and Edmonton and the West and stuff like that. And I mentioned that one of my closest friends in the world, Becky, is also from Edmonton. And so I love the accent. And then she called, like, like exactly uh, oh, really? when we were messaging and I had this like long conversation with her. But I mentioned the... She lives in Montana right now, and uh, and yeah. I mentioned to her the broad outlines of your argument, and she said, oh, fuck yeah. She's like, yeah, that's definitely going to happen. Right. She's like, yeah, there's definitely going to be a civil war. Uh, she goes, it's just it, it boiling over all the time. Like, you can just – and so yeah. maybe you can sort of just tell our our listeners what, you know – how this book is organized and what is your kind of your premise? Well, I mean, what it really is, is it's, I guess it's predictions, it's projections, kind of imagined scenarios about the future civil war in the United States. Um, but they're really backed up with, um, you know, the best available models for very, like for climate change and for, you know, for hyperpartisanship. And from talking to the guys at Prio, who who are this sort of civil war experts, and just interviewing ordinary Americans and going to you know going and talking to oath keepers and going and talking to far right people and um, sort of you know it's predictions, but like it's barely predictions. Like it's you know you don't really have to predict much anymore about an American civil war. You just it's just slight uh, changes, just imagining inciting incidents. And of course, like it did occur to me that between now, like it's December 9th now, and when the book comes out and you're going to put out this podcast January 6th, like 
God knows what will have happened in those three weeks. Like we're absolutely under the expectation that something might well happen between now and then that would like render this entire conversation moot. Like it, I, it really is at, at that boiling point. I mean, one thing that like you say, it's a very dark book, but you know, now that it's gotten sort of into the hands of like, especially journalists in the States, you know, the, the on the ground journalists that I really respect, like I haven't been in the States since COVID. Right. So I haven't like, I haven't been on the ground in quite a while now. And they said to me, you know, you're right, but it's accelerating much faster than you think. Like it's like what you're, what you're describing in this book is like, you know, I don't have timestamps on it. Like it's not like this is going to happen in five years or something, but it's accelerating. Like it's happening much more quickly than, than the book projected. So that was not what I was expecting. Yeah. I hate when I wrote. So just, just so our, our listeners understand like what the, each of the chapters in this book are it's it's sort of like from a game theoretical model. It's sort of like gaming out different scenarios that are extremely plausible given present information, and sort of showing like, okay, if um, if this system is going to fail, what are the likely ways in which yeah. it will fail? And so gaming out, and this is actually something that is just standard for. I mean, they do this in the military. They do this in governments. Yeah. I mean, they even do this. Not even just at federal and provincial or state levels. They do this at municipal levels. I know that the municipal government, yeah. they get together um, at least at least once a year, sometimes twice or even three times a year, and they game out scenarios. Like, so for instance, when, if there's a lot of protests happening, they game out, okay, what if we get three times as many people in the street and the protest turns violent. What? Sh- how do we plan for this? What do we do? Yeah. yeah. What do we do? And, and so, I mean, yeah. Some of this is based on the actual mod, like the the actual models that military people have drawn up about. Like the first one is what would happen if a if a, a sheriff in a county decided to really defy the federal government in the name of local authority, um, which is incredibly easy to imagine. Um, and, uh, you know, there are scenarios for that. The other ones are like, what would happen if there was a presidential assassination, which I think it would not at all be a, a period of national mourning anymore. Um, what, what would, what, what would an occupied America look like? Like what would a, what would a, what would a period where, uh, where factionalism really took over and became violent and then needed to clamp down on the violence? Like what would that look like? Um, you know, unfortunately, we have like incredibly clear models of how the American military would deal with, um, you know, insurgencies. And then there's uh, like just the environmental disaster, particularly on the eastern seaboard, that is just waiting to happen uh, for the United States, in which they have decided for reasons that are, you know, partly bound up with their collapse of their government to do very little about. Um, and like one of the, when, when I was sort of doing the final edits on the book, like one of the most shocking things was like, I'd imagined they were going to build the seawall in Manhattan because they planned to. And then Trump basically canceled that on a whim in, um, in just before he left, like December of, of 2020. And so I had to like put a footnote saying like, I assume they're going to build this because not to build it is a form of urban suicide. Um, but if they don't build it, then they're just totally exposed and it's going to be much worse than what's in the book. But, you know, that's the, like the, the complex cascading nature of this system is kind of 
what the book describes, which is bad government, like angry government, hyper-partisanship leads to bad government, which leads to bad decisions, which leads to disasters, which leads to angry people, which leads to bad government and so on. And that's what we're really in the middle of this cycle. And it's incredibly hard to escape from it. Yeah. It's, it's it's interesting. When I was talking to my friend Becky this morning, I, I told her about the different chapters of your book. And one of them, she reminded me of this conversation that she had with a friend of a friend of mine here in Montreal years ago at one of my birthday parties. They were in town and uh, this friend of mine, she was in town from DC and she works for the, she's kind of just an all around kind of brilliant person, but she works for the US patent office and she's a physicist and but she comes from a military family and she grew up like as a base brat, you know, moving all over the place. And she and my friend Becky just like hit it off immediately. And they just ended up talking for like hours, the two of them. But at one point they talked about, you know, civil war and things like that. And, and some sort of local skirmish with, with a sheriff or a militia turning into something much, much larger and it was funny, this uh, friend of mine from, from D.C., she said to Becky, she said, yeah, she goes, I grew up in the military. My family's all in the military. My father's, like, pretty high up in the military. And, like, I can tell you right now, if something like that happens, about half the military will, like, defect, you know, immediately to the other side. Um, they'll be supportive of the other side. And the other half will fold in a week. And I... I just thought, uh, wow, well, like that's really that's really creepy. Like, and, and she said, "Yeah, but their their sympathies are not with, you know, the kind of New York Times, PBS, and BR people. Like, that's not where their sympathies are." Well, there's a huge there's a huge divide in the military, much like there is a divide in America between the generals who are. Uh, you know, anti-Trump or an anti-popular, they were, they were certainly like 70% of vote for Hillary and the common soldiers who are, you know, about 70% for Trump. So yeah, that's true. But on the other hand, they actually have ways of dealing with that in the military, like in their plans. Like for example, when, um, when they had to uh, integrate the schools with the military in Arkansas in 57, they, in, they, they sent the Arkansas state militia to barracks. They like basically put them under house arrest in their own barracks. Um, they, 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 you know, the American, the U.S. military, unlike Canada and unlike British people, um, doesn't work by local. Like it's, it's very generalized because of the Civil War. They don't have like local units with a particular place. They're just part of larger military units, and that's one of the reasons why. You know, I like. I think there'd be a lot of resistance from the military, but actually, they just they just really follow orders. Like they take their oaths very seriously, and you you could see that all through Trump. I mean, I think honestly, it was one of the things that one of the last kind of things of American decency that kept that country from burning at that point was that the, you could rely on the military to keep their oath uh, to the Constitution. And you know, I actually don't. I don't really. I don't really worry about the military turning. Um, that seems to me highly unlikely. Uh, what I do worry about is who the, the military will follow whoever is in control of the U.S. government because their their oath of loyalty is to the uh, to the to the Constitution. And 
when you know when you're we're about to enter a period in american life where there's just a huge we're, i think we're already there actually where there's just a massive legitimacy crisis in the political order and you know 2022 and 2024 are really going to test the limits of what americans accept as uh their government and and not just from the right right i mean i think like the 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 abortion decision which is about to happen um you know is going to where five out of the nine justices are were appointed by presidents who did not win the popular vote and are about to you know make a very unpopular decision it looks like um that that's going to really really test the the, the american left i mean already you have people like stephen colbert saying we're not living in a democracy and i think the question of what that looks like what ha- like the right have already completely lost faith in government and their politics is basically the politics of the gun at this point like they don't they don't they're not interested in winning votes and they're not interested in uh you know in, in democratic systems like they've they've lost faith in them um what happens when the left similarly loses faith in all of their institutions um it's it's very hard to know but one thing you can be certain of is like when law falls apart, um, everything falls apart. I mean, like it is, it is truly a sacred thing. And, and, and when it's gone, like there is no, there is no political order anymore. Yeah. I, I'm always amazed at how little, I, I don't know, I guess maybe this is just like part of like what civilization does. You just, you, you come to take things for granted, you know, how little people realize that that's, very, very important that somehow, like, they, they imagine, you know, it's you see this when you talk to anarchists, like, whether they be, like, right-wing, you know, left-wing, libertarian, uh, religious, non-religious, they all, in general, have this really sort of childlike idea that they imagine that when the order, when the law, law and order are gone, that it's going to be, it, it's sort of like a teenage boy's fantasy of, what it's like when your parents are gone for the weekend and you can just stay up as late right. as you want and you can have fun and there's nobody to tell you what to do. And they don't realize that like, there's so much shit about your life. There's so many bills that just get paid and you don't even know that the, there was a bill there. And there's so many problems that are taken care of by people that, that you don't even understand. And then when that's gone, like, you're going to notice it's gone. You're, it's gone. I mean, well, you, you look I at think, the fall I mean, of the Roman empire, like they, they, they forgot yeah. how to even repair. They couldn't even make the cement to repair the walls and the aqueducts and the streets. Like it took yeah. like uh, hundreds and hundreds of years before they remembered how to actually even do the most basic things. I mean, yeah. I mean, well, I think like one of the things about, I remember a friend coming back from the Middle East and like he was in, like he was in Dubai and he was in all these other places. And I was like, what did you miss most about home? And, you know, I expected like, I don't know, sugar puffs or something. Like I expected like some kind of like food thing that probably says more about me than, than him. But, um, and his answer was the rule of law, you know, because when you, the, the basic insecurity of your life, when you do not know, what's going to happen if there's a traffic accident like like if there's a traffic accident you do not know what uh, what what will happen to you and everyone involved and it's basically at the whim of of very dubious individuals uh you know that is that is a lot that is really really hard to live with 
Um, and, you know, and I think everyone who's experienced fears it. I mean, there's a reason 400,000 people moved to Canada last year, right? And it wasn't the weather. Like, it's, it's the law. It's the rule of law, right? And so, yeah, like, I think, I mean, I, I think in general, the thing I just find unbelievable about the whole American situation, like, increasingly, you know, I'm starting to ask myself, like, why is it falling apart? Like, this book is really a description of how it's falling apart. And it, it like, the whys are really technical. It's like, well, you know, there's these, these models and these explain these phenomena. And when you put them together, this is what it looks like. But like, like, I keep thinking about Josh Hawley on January 6th last year. Like, this is a man educated at Yale, like, with like a junior, like one of the, one of the most educated people in his country raising his fist for, to, in support of a mob that is about to go and try and kill him and destroy the institution to which he belongs. What, you know, it is like, it does bring up those questions like Gibbon asked in decline and fall of the Roman empire. Like why, like why, like why, why did it all, like, why did they lose their sense of the value of all this? You know, like, how did they lose their sense of, of, it, of its, of its, uh, for, for what, for like very small political, temporary political gains of your, like, is your political career really worth that much? Like, how can it be? Um, but yeah, they, 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 I guess part of them also feels like they're just invulnerable, but they're really not invulnerable. Like they're not invulnerable at all. Yeah. And you know, the comparison I've heard, you know, one of the, when I was talking to my friend this morning about this and. I, you know, she said, yeah, you know, people imagine that somehow these militias are just like pampered idiots and that they, they would fold in a second if they were up against. And she goes, but look at, you know, when the American military went up against Afghanistan, Vietnam, these various places, they lost, you know. And I said, yeah, but yeah. the difference there is you have you have like the Vietnamese people and the Afghanis are fucking tough as shit. I mean, like they're very, you know, they can they can live off of the land they can deal with like uneven terrain and difficult terrain and stuff like that. I said, like, do you really think like the people that are in the militia movement in the States are, are cut from the same cloth? I mean, these are people who complain when Walmart changes its hours. Like these are like yeah. people who are like overweight and kind of are sweaty and like freaked out if they, if they have to take the stairs instead of the elevator and really they're going to like, stand up to the american military i i don't know i'm not i'm not i'm not convinced well the question is the question is um you know the militias like trying to get an answer like i talked to many military people about trying to get an answer about like what an engagement between the like a, a the marines and a militia would be like and it was just like they couldn't they could not take it seriously it was like asking what would it be like if the Toronto Raptors took on the YMCA pickup Sunday pickup team, like professional soldiers are professional soldiers and having met dudes in these militias, like, you know, yeah, they need to lose some weight. They need, there's a lot of things that they need to do to be like, they're not battle ready, but you know, when you read like the, the details of the occupation of Afghanistan and Iraq, like the Americans don't really lose many engagements. Like they don't, they like the book, why we lost by Daniel Bolger, like, you keep waiting for the losses. There's not a lot of losses. Like they will go in and kill a hundred insurgents in a day in a surgical operation. It just makes absolutely no difference. And, you know, there is a model for, um, 
like an American insurgency and it's the Ku Klux Klan and the red shirts during um, reconstruction. And they won, you know, like, like it took them 10 years of low grade terrorism, but the American, the, the, the North basically could not stomach occupying the South. They realized like, we're not going to kill every Southerner. And so it, it, you know, effectively African-Americans are reduced to, uh, you know, a non non-political form and the south is given uh, home rule uh, under those conditions and that's 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 what it looked like like that's what like i i think i think it's it's very easy to think of the reconstruction period as a period of insurgency like it's not really the end the, the war didn't properly end it just continued under different means and the and the south won that part of the war. Mm-hmm. so yeah like i like i th- if you think that sort of soldiers are going to solve this like because they have the tanks like that that doesn't work at all like afghanistan they, there were soldiers they 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 would kill these afghan fighters and they would find rifles on them that the british soldiers had left behind in the 19th century that were still being used to fight them right like they had total and complete tactical superiority but they still lost yeah. Right? Because because all because ultimately that like all the violence can do, all the military can do is control the violence. And at, and that comes at a significant cost, right, to control the violence. And and all they can do is the best case scenario is that they can provide some kind of space for political uh, reconciliation. Well, America already has the space for political reconciliation right now, and it's it's going nowhere. Yeah. No, that's very true. And you know, you you look at some of the the founders of our nation, uh, people like uh, Louis Hippolyte Lafontaine, or people like uh, Sir Wilfrid Laurier, and and you read their their writings on revolution and on like political violence, and like they're just so fucking smart. Like they they very clearly saw that when you when something boils over into violence. You've got to just calm things down as quickly as possible, and you have to pardon people, and you have to because for every person you kill, and this is exactly what you know in one of the chapters of your book, it's the first one that you know. Sure, fine, you can like beat the militia very easily. It's like having a UFC fighter go against your eleven-year-old. Like, of course they're going to win. Yeah. Like, but yeah. Um, but then every person that you kill or hurt you've just radicalized their whole family or half their family and exactly. their friends, everybody in their network. I mean, I know that, you know, the, the times in my life where I've felt really a kind of murderous rage um, a couple of times in my life. And it was always because somebody from my, somebody very, very close to me or somebody, you know, like a family member or a very close friend was harmed and, yeah, like something just, it, it just kicks in. So if you have like a small radicalized group and they go and do some stupid shit and then they get like killed, well, all those people in their network or a lot of the people in their network who maybe were not really kind of into the crazy QAnon fantasies, they can definitely feel, you know, radicalized by the fact that you just killed their brother or their cousin or their neighbor yeah right? and that's where I mean, everything gets really even... bad <laughs> yeah well it's also that um the act of control is it's it you know like iraq like like baghdad um 
in the 2000s and 2010s was segmented like every neighborhood of the uh, every neighborhood was segmented and you needed a pass to get in and out of a neighborhood and there was 24/7 surveillance and there were Alaska um gates between each neighborhood and effectively it was a prison right like 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 ordinary life like the terrorists could not do things but ordinary life really couldn't do much either right and so it's not even just a question of like obvious things like the ineffectiveness of torture which has just been shown like over and over and over again um but it's also like the the disruption of of ordinary commerce is quite intense it's quite it's it's quite um it's quite a lot so yeah, like, I mean, the lesson that the America has learned, or who knows if they have actually learned it, over the past 70 years um, of counterinsurgency is that, it, in effect, it's not a winnable game. Like, it's not, it, like, if you win, you lose, and if you lose, you still lose. Yeah. So, you know, and I think the question of, like, whether those militias are, like, have the, have the stamina of the Afghans, like... You could say no one on earth has the stamina of the Afghans for suffering. Like, obviously, they don't. But on the other hand, I think their devotion to their this concept of America and this messianic concept of freedom, which is totally unfulfillable, um, is 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 really profound. And I don't think it would. I don't think it would uh, just fold because you know Walmart closed. Like, I don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there, a lot of them are already. A lot of them are already quite dispossessed. You know, so it's like, it's, yeah, I mean, there certainly is a lot of pain there already. So, yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I think the question of who would win in these struggles, like the U.S. military is the U.S. military. Like they're not, they're they're not losing to anyone, frankly. Uh, But, but never mind, like a ragtag bunch of like Sunday night warriors. But um, on the other hand, like, I think, the, the country is divided along some pretty tough lines. I mean, the Republicans definitely have the structure of government and, and which is becoming more and more illegitimate um, and is giving them power that they have not earned um, all the time. And it is going to increase drastically over the next 20 years doing that. And the other side, you know, 70% of GDP in America came from Democrat voting counties. So the left actually has the majority of the country and almost all of the money. And that I think actually might, might make quite a big difference. Oh, I think it makes a a big difference. I know your, your, (laughs) your nemesis or one of them, uh, David from, he like in his book, uh, Trumpocalypse, he talks. I wouldn't call him a nemesis. I'm I'm in, I I like a lot. I like a lot of what David writes. I guess we have had some fights, but but (laughs) only over, only over his sister. But yeah, Yeah. like, yeah, I I liked it. I mean, I think David has written really well about a lot of this stuff. Yeah, he, but he, he, in his most recent book, Trumpocalypse, he makes exactly this point. And I, he says that, um, you know, Nixon talked about the silent majority of people who just, you know, don't make a lot of noise and just sort of work hard and pay the taxes and they kind of carry the weight for everybody else and they get kind of shit on and stuff like that. And uh, and he said, you know, the, the crazy thing is that in my lifetime, as David Frum talking about this, he said, in my lifetime, I've watched now, he goes, the silent majority that pays all the bills and does all the heavy lifting, it's the blue states. It's like the it's the like kind of yeah. liberal. They're the ones that actually like New Jersey taxpayers put about 
$2.45 into the federal system yeah. for every dollar they get back. Meanwhile, the hardcore, like, red state, like, we love freedom, you know, Montana and stuff like that, they take, like, fucking $3 out for every dollar they put in. So they're the big welfare cases. South Carolina is 7 Oh my God! South Carolina takes seven dollars out for every dollar. Oh my person. God! I the mean, South, like, I, I mean, you know, the the truth is, like, at some point, I think the North is going to realize, like, we we really don't we we have no political you know communion with these people, and also there's 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 they're just strictly a burden. Like they just strictly cost. Like they they really are um, really ineffective. You know, and yeah. um, they're like they're 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 also at a real I would say like a they're 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 way less educated than the Northeast and California and Texas. Like Texas is a completely separate question. Texas is very effective, mm-hmm. but uh, like it's a it, it's a fully functioning state. But like Louisiana and South Carolina and uh, Tennessee, like these places are not on the same level of development as as Massachusetts or or New Jersey, like not, not in the same, well, like, this is the question, like, are they really the same country anymore? Because I, I, I don't think they are. Like, I think they really are so different on so many levels that they've just, that they, they have, that there's something they're they're different places now. Yeah. Well, you, you say that, uh, that probably the most likely outcome of the breakdown of the United States is that you get four distinct states. You get California separates and becomes its own country, and you know right away we'll we'll have like a GDP that puts it in the kind of top ten, you know, most powerful. It'd be the richest country in the world, automatic. Yeah, it would be like per capita by far. It would be, it would be the richest country in the world by far. Yeah, uh, like I think by thirty thousand dollars of GDP per citizen. Like I think the next wild. highest is is forty thousand. Well, they're tech and entertainment. I mean, they are the new economy. But I wouldn't say that's the most likely scenario. I'm just saying that's the one that I hope for them. Yeah. Because I think that's actually. But you, like, you that, the way that's you, what I, you game it out is like there's California, game. there's Texas. Texas separates and becomes, and then the rest of the United States, you say, will divide along roughly the you know the lines of the last civil war uh you know north and south type thing but of course it's going to be much more messy than that because it's not as if there's like a clear you know geographical line and so there's going to be a lot of like people having to move from one place to another place to be in you know among people that they yeah, they, I mean that's that's yeah. already been happening for a while. They call it like what is it the big the big uh, sort big sort the big sort that yeah, this has sort. already been happening. Yeah. That people increasingly are moving to places where they feel like more like they're among their people, and uh, and I've I've seen yeah. this just in my own kind of friends and family like networks where people who are much more kind of religious and right leaning who let's say grow up in. New England will move down to South Carolina or Texas or, you know, and just because they feel more at home there. Right. And there's like people from Texas who let's say come out and they're gay and they're like, yeah, Austin is great, but it's not enough. And so they move to New York or Boston or LA and or San Francisco. And then people who are 
pretty kind of like right wing move from California to Texas. And, you know, so there is this kind of sorting process that's happening already and it's actually changing the electoral map in all sorts of interesting ways. But but you're talking about this actually becoming, you know, systemic, system-wide, right? And so, so what would this mean for Canadians like us? I mean, what is the breakup of the United States going to mean for Canada? Well, um, I mean, I think, obviously, uh, the, the turbulence of the politics feeds over into us. Although I think we've actually done a pretty good job of resisting it. I mean, we get some of it, like we get some of the far left stuff and we get some of the far right stuff, but really they're not, it's not comparable on the same level. I would say, um, you know, like the, the, the some people say, Oh, well, we're, we're just as bad as the States. And I, I just think like, wake up, like go over and hang out there for you know eight hours. You'll be you're, you're, we're not anywhere near as bad as they are. Our conservatives are are not anywhere remotely in the same. They're not. I don't think that they can really be considered even political allies at this point. Canadian conservatives and American conservatives are so distinct in their approach to every single important question, from democracy to race to everything else. Um, you know, so there's, I think there's the, there's the spillover of that, but we seem to be dealing relatively well with that. I, I think there's going to be more violence to the South and that, you know, I think America has been a real, like, where we go when, you know, it's where you go when you want to make something, right? Because when you want to make a television show or something like that, like, that's where you go. And that, I think that's going to not be available uh for a while like i think we already saw that a bit during trump and you know i like this is anecdotal this is just but people are moving back like people like canadians are moving back like we like you see this in really odd ways like people with big jobs uh who have who are like canadians living in america that you maybe didn't even know are canadian like suddenly they're just like well uh the school systems don't work like it's not just like because it's not just like the obvious stuff the violence it's like the school system the school system in america is really broken the healthcare system in america is really broken uh like the 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 ordinary commerce of life is much harder uh if you have something like a diabetic kid in america that's a that's a true nightmare right um like so all of these things like all of these things are leading to i i think a more you know, maybe even a nationalist moment, although one that's entirely fearful. Um, you know, we we confederated under because the America because America went to civil war, right? And I I think it is a kind of moment where it's like, okay, we are we are a bit more unified now, and we we like we're the the, the infighting that defines us is kind of lesser. I mean, I think you can already kind of see this. I wonder if you would agree with this, like. The, the last election basically had no debate in it. I mean, there was no, there was like, there, everyone was in agreement. Like, everyone, like in terms of policies about what the country should do, the differences between the parties were negligible. Really, I, I mean, not entirely, you know, not, not entirely dissolved, but basically no one had the stomach to like go out and do and, and promote a really crazy political idea to see if it stuck. And I think that's largely because it's like, well, America is falling apart. We all need to just no, we like American Canadian voters cannot be scared. Like that's not what we want now is security and to just you know rein it and 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 keep keep ourselves together for a while. 
mm-hmm. um, which is you know a very nat- a very natural thing for Canadians anyway, right? Like the the garrison mentality just gets a little more intense for a while. Yeah, well, I, you know, it's it's funny because like, I I can automatically when you're saying that I just thought of like so many different anecdotes and people I know that fit into your your theory, but like one in particular that just occurred to me because I just finished. Uh, reading his uh, new book for a second time, Paul Bloom's book, uh, The Sweet Spot, uh, The Pleasures of Suffering and the Search for Meaning. I mean, this is like one of the guys who's done like the most path-breaking work in psychology in the last 20 years. I mean, he's done just so much amazing stuff. He was at Yale. He was at the top of his game. And uh, like you, he just like left. He's like, fuck it. I just, this is too... You know, I know I've done well, but I feel like I'm in crumbling Rome and I need to get the fuck out of here. And he he came back to Canada. Right. He's at U of T. He left like a tenured position at Yale to just because he's like, you know, after being mugged for the third time in New Haven, after having like identity theft again and again, having like just there's all these like little things that just sort of indicate to you that like, you know, behind the veneer. You know, like like when we were living in the States, like my wife and I, like we had just so many basic things to do with like banking and kind of logistical issues that went wrong again and again. Like whereas like here that just doesn't yeah. happen. It like hardly ever happens yeah. because shit is regulated. Things are on top. Like I had, you know, I had a conversation. I was thinking about this when you were talking before, like uh, I had a conversation with uh, my neighbors who were moved here from Bangladesh and She's this is a very, very smart, educated woman. And she said to me, in all seriousness, she said, uh, so like, you know, after we had a big snowstorm here the other day, she said, So who do you uh, you know, do you have connections with the municipal government? Is that why our street gets cleaned so well? And uh I said right. I said, Well, yeah, I do have connections yeah, to the municipal is. government, yeah, but 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 it has absolutely <laughs> nothing to do with the street. She said, So you don't have like Payoffs like bribes to the people who right. I was like, no, yeah. I yeah. no, I pay my taxes and everybody just gets their street cleaned. Yes. It's like that has nothing to do with no, that's not a. Um, and she's like, really? I said, like, yeah, they it just they just but clean that, your you streets, and that's like, that's, that's, freaks, that's just normal. Right? Like, that's just normal the, in a lot of the world. Yeah, yeah. It, well, it, well, it, that is how the world works. Like, it's just us who, like, I remember being in Argentina once and, and asking someone how they bribe cops. And it was like, the guy looked at me like I was a child. Like, it's like, you, you've you never had to bribe a police. Like, what are you, 10 years old? Like, it, 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 like everywhere else in the world, that's just, that's just absolutely, you know, perfectly normal. And it, yeah, I, I, I mean, I really do think. You know, well, the problem is that America is going backwards now, right? And I mean, it is like I, I think honestly, it partly it is partly this the political violence that I'm afraid of, but it's also the chaos, like the chaos, like you know, friends of mine have like asked us to to buy like not insulin, but like some of the packages that you use to get because like in America, the, like the price of insulin has been jacked up to this just absurd amount, and it it really becomes like, well, how are you supposed to live with this? Like, do you, do you want to do, you, is this how you want to live? Um, cause I, like, I don't, I, people don't want to live that way in my experience, you know, like they, they really don't. 
Yeah. Well, they apparently tried. And, they apparently and, and, there was a company. There was a pharmaceutical company. Uh, you can you can check up on this, but like I heard this from like some of my people that teach at John Abbott that uh, there was a pharmaceutical company that tried to jack up the price of insulin in Canada, and they wanted to. And Stephen Harper told them, uh, "I will like seize your accounts and forbid you to do business right. in Canada if you do that." Like he basically just said, right. "You fucking go there, and I will, you know, prevent you from doing business yeah, in we'll Canada." End, we'll end you. Yeah, and I mean, well, you know, it's fun. like when you, like people are like, "Oh, the Canadian conservatives are so bad." It's like, look, I wrote against Stephen Harper a lot. Like, I wrote, I, I wrote against him in in the New York Times and in a lot of places. And you know, I've been described as an enemy of conservative of conservatives by by a lot of conservatives. That's absurd. But let's just be frank here. Well, I, I mean, fair enough. Like, you know, I've written against their policies. I, I called, you know, Doug Ford a tin pot Northern Trump. And I, you know, I've like, I've taken, I, I certainly don't agree with their policies, but like, you just have to recognize that they're not in the same universe as a U.S. congressman uh, who is, you know, in, in danger for his life if he takes anything other than the most extreme kind of policies on really basic things like voting rights. You know, Stephen Harper was not, he believed in democracy, <laughs> like, re, like in his bones, you know, like you, you would, ne you could never, ever take that out of him. Right. Um, you know, also the, the man who started us on the path towards truth and reconciliation, the first person to, in parliament to say that, uh, to, to talk about the, uh, abuse at schools and the first person to call Quebec a nation in the, uh, in, a, in, a, in parliament. So that's not like, and that, he, and a, he said a, that shit in French, means. which I got to say, man, we fucking, we loved that. I mean, he tried, he really tried right. to speak well, French and he was, like, he's good. He, he showed like, he, I don't think it was lip service. I think the stuff he said about truth and reconciliation, I don't think it was I think lip he service. genuinely I, believed I think that. He meant it. I, I, I think he genuinely meant it too. And I think he, uh, so like that is so far from what, what American, where American conservatives are right now that I don't think they can be considered in the same political universe. Like, I, I just don't think they're, they're even remotely, um, they're, they can even be connected. Like I, I like they're, they're, they're just, they're just totally different political animals. Yeah. And the flip side is also true. You, you can talk, I, I know I, I do it regularly. You can talk to somebody who's like very, very far left in Canada, uh, here at, you know, in Montreal, which is where I live. So that's where I see it the most, but like, you can talk to somebody on the far left who's like super hardcore progressive. You can have an intelligent conversation with them about law enforcement and the importance of like security and police and pro yeah. property rights and of the military and of like what is an acceptable level of like you know CSIS monitoring shit to keep us safe. You can have a you can have like a rational, intelligent conversation with them where they'll just like yeah yeah f sure we've got to have this we've got to have that like whereas there is kind of a a far left conversation that you can have in in Brooklyn or in Baltimore or in DC or Philly or San Francisco that is so insane, like, and so detached from like yeah. reality as well. Right. Where, yeah. I mean, I, I agree yeah. with you that the, the, the right and the left well, remember, Canada are just still kind of grounded to, to earth. Well, they're, they're still in policy land. 
Like they still think about policies. Like I remember going from in 2015, right after Trudeau had won here. So after the Canadian election here, right after that, I got, I got in my car and I went down and saw a Trump rally and a Sanders rally. And like Canadian debates are this way. They're, uh, we need to spend $23 million on it, on increased education in this plan. No, you're crazy. We need to spend $26 million on it. And everyone's showing off their numbers and everything like that. No one brings up numbers in American politics. Like they don't. Yeah. Like, it's like, and let's fucking abolish very, the Department of Education. Exactly. Yeah. Like, it's, it's like and, and craziness. It's, and it's, it's like, or like Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders being like, we need socialism in America. And I'm like, well, that's great, but you know that socialism is really like it's a, it's bureaucratic and it's boring, and like you actually need a pretty solid plan. Like it, it, the de- it's the details that matter when it comes to socialism. Like and uh, you know, but th- th- they're because their system is in such a breakdown. Um, basically, their politics is theology, and they, they they barely they barely really even address policy anymore because because there's no point. And, and when that happens, like it suddenly becomes like, we're, we're not talking about like, how should we allocate uh, our tax resources, which is the discrepancy between conservatives, liberals and left wing people in Canada. It, it becomes more about like, well, who are we as a nation? What, what is our God? What is freedom? And of course, those questions, you know, they, they, they're unanswerable and they, uh, they're, they're not the basis for sane politics. Yeah. And yeah, but like the, the the other thing that happens is like as this this is the nature of hyperpartisanship in the states is as the system hollows out, it gets more extreme because there's no there's no point actually being reasonable because the more like you're never gonna do these as policies anyway, right? Like you're ne- you're never your bluff is never gonna be called, right? Like it's not like you're gonna get into power and be able to do these things. Uh you you're 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 just it's just talk it's just like a plan yeah no you're you're absolutely right it's it's funny i i actually i was asked uh this was a couple months ago i was asked to like participate in this conference uh, down in the states and it was all on like the issue of like cancel culture right and so they they wanted they wanted me to sort of like take a position on this and stuff like that so i wrote like my my short kind of perspectives of what my position would be and of course i mean it was a joke i i knew it was going to be rejected immediately but like i mean my my response was like okay you guys are just asking the wrong fucking question like you're 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 sort of in this very abstract exactly like you said like you're in kind of like theology land right you're it's very abstract and my response was like well the real problem with cancel culture is not like politics or tolerance it's unionization i said i'm a unionized yes. worker I'm a unionized worker. I have a fucking badass union behind my back. And like, unless I'm doing something that is actually really harmful to, to students or to the institution uh, that is like fraudulent or criminal, um, they're going to have my back, you know, because not because they agree with me right. necessarily, but because they're my fucking union. Like I'm a, I'm a unionized worker. Like that's, like the solution yeah. is not I said so many of these like cancel culture problems are you're not even fucking asking the right question. Like the right question is yeah. why is it so yeah. easy to get rid of workers on a whim? You know, like why is it so why does it make exactly. sense for why does it make sense for yeah. management to get like you're you're not even asking the right fucking question. Like 
and yeah. and uh, of course well, and they also, of course like, they rejected the it side, right like, away because it doesn't fit into yeah, their yeah. how many angels yeah, can dance on the end of a pin question like. Well, and and more, it's like we're we're doing this to get angry, you know, because like we don't we don't ever actually have to face the, 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 the like no one is ever going to allow us to make this into actual policy, so we don't really have to think through this very carefully. Like, you know, you know, like there, there are like the stakes are entirely emotional, you know, they're not, they're not like, well, we're actually going to do this stuff, you know? Um, and, and like, I, like the, the cancel culture thing, like, I think it, it isn't really interesting reading, writing this book because you're, it's like, well, what, what are the, like, what are the effects of like radical left wing? Not zero. Like zero, like that's the, like when you, when you look at like what the, what the political effects of these things are, like there's never been a more impotent political movement than the current iteration of political correctness in the United States. Like that's the other problem. Like they're, they're, they're fighting for they're they're screaming about this because they don't have unions, right? Because they don't actually have any power, right? They don't, ha they don't have the capacity to, their 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 lives are determined by corporations and other and other forces that are totally beyond their their control and so you know it it, it becomes necessary to just be angry all the time to to just even feel like you're having some kind of effect mm -hmm. yeah it's like i remember there recently they uh they decapitated this statue of john a mcdonald the first Prime Minister of Canada after Confederation. I refu yeah. I refuse to ever, as a Montrealer, say that he was the first Prime Minister. He's the first Prime Minister after Confederation. <laughs> the first Prime Minister is La Fontaine, my one of my fucking heroes. I fucking that is a that is yeah. a strange that is a strange hill to die on. But go ahead. I, I'm willing to do it any day of the week, twice on it's Sunday. True. Yeah. So, yeah. but yeah, like so, they decapitated this statue of. Uh, of Sir John A. Macdonald, and they sort of, it was this like kind of, uh, kind of, you know, saying that, oh, he was a racist and he was, did all these horrible things and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, Valerie Plante, who, our, our mayor, who's uh, very kind of, you know, very much uh, left progressive leader, she just like roundly denounced this like big time. And she got yeah. like, she got so attacked on Twitter and its social media for, and they called her like an apologist for white supremacy and like just all these yeah. like nasty, nasty things. And her response I thought was like exactly what you would expect from like, like you said, somebody who lives in policy world, like in the real world, like she said, look, if we can't, there are procedures to get rid of statues. And she goes, look, I'm like, a, well, you know, exactly. I'm, a, I'm a Francophone, like Quebecer who like, you know, was like a lot of people here, like kind of really partial to separatism in my youth. And like, I have no love for fucking Johnny McDonald, like seriously, but I do have a love for the rule of law. And I think if a, yes. if a municipal government cannot keep the peace and protect property, then we have yeah, no reason wrong. to exist. Like that is like yeah, our that is like the first order of business. Feed your kids, keep them sheltered. Yeah. You know, if you can't do that, it doesn't yeah. matter anything else. So she goes, Yeah, of course I hate this and I'm against this. And would I love to see that statue come down? Oh yeah. Like I would love, but it has to come down legally where we petition, we make like we 
we change names of streets and buildings all the time. We can do that. But there's a procedure, and is yeah. it annoying? Does it take a long time? Sure. But that's so much better than having to, like, make anything happen by force. Yeah. Yeah, and I you see I argued for I argued for removing John A. McDonald's statues in 2012, like a I, long time I, ago. I remember. I, I remember I, that. I, I re- yeah. I really I really believe in it. But you know, when when a mob tears down a sculpture, like it, that's meaningless. Like when a de- when it, when the when a democracy, like when we decide collectively through our politics to remove a sculpture, that's meaningful. That's a, that's a, that's a meaningful statement. We don't want to be like John A. McDonald anymore. Like that, that, and, and that's what counts, right? Like that's what, like, that's the stuff that, that actually means something, uh, to, to the, to, to what we could be as a people, whereas just destroying things, anyone could do that. You know, like it's not like, and, and you know, this, that is something that is just borrowed from America. Like that, that is something that is just take, like they were doing it in the States. Well, we want some action. We have to do it here. I mean, I remember going, I remember seeing the same thing in 2008 with the, um, or the, the anti-capitalist things in the, the wall street. What was it called? It was the, uh, oh, oh my God. It, the, why am I forgetting this? I know what you're talking about. It wasn't yeah. cancel wall street. It wasn't cancel wall street. It yeah. was, um, it, Occupy Wall Street. We had a version on Occupy. Occupy. Occupy Street, right? Eric just a, told me over the headphones. <laughs> it's the Occupy Wall Street movement. Yeah, they had they had the similar thing in Toronto, like Occupy Bay Street, and I was like, "You're trying like the people in America are fighting to get our banking laws. Like that's what they're that's what they're trying to get is like banking laws that look like Canada's. Why are you?" But it's like, well, there's a show. Let's just be part of it. And I, I, I find that I genuinely, I kind of find it humiliating. Like we, we, God knows we have our own problems, you know, like, like, and why, why we have to borrow America's problems for our own uh, is, is beyond me. Yeah. There, I want to just talk a little bit about one of the chapters in the book, uh, Portrait of an Assassination. I, 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 I absolutely mm-hmm. loved it. I, I, it's it's creepy. Um, it's sort of like I, I said to you, like I think in a message after I read that chapter, I said it's it's like crime and punishment meets taxi driver. <laughs> like it's sort of like you you, you really right. sort of like get into the mindset, and you speak in the voice of this you know angry young man who gets mm-hmm. kind of radicalized over the internet and decides to assassinate the president and. Uh, can you sort of just walk through, like, how did you? I mean, because that was, I mean, that that very much is sort of. I they have incredibly a, good models. They have incredibly, they have incredibly good descriptions of how it works. It's called stochastic terrorism, and they, they there is so much good research on it. Like, it's. I mean, I just turned it into a single character and made it actually happen to him. But guys like that are just, they're there. They're they're in the they're in the world for sure. And, uh, and, and, you know, that all I did really was just take the, the models of stochastic terrorism and just turn it into a real person. Um, cause it was, you know, it's, it's kind of like there, th- that is how this works. And I mean, you know, the, the, the thing that, again, it's a question of like, it's accelerating faster than I thought. Like he, um, like now that now the, 
now that people like that are not just threatening politi- like major political leaders, they're threatening people who run the voting systems. They're they're like you know they're running people who run for district like very small district jobs. They're they're threatening like local level politicians, which you know keep democracy running. Really, like the, the people who 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 take these like basically unglamorous democratic jobs. Um, they're they're really coming for them too now, and like a huge numbers of sitting congressmen are leaving because they their families are threatened, which you know that has political consequences. Like that that has real costs um, to to how this to how this is going to play out. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I've you know when I was reading that uh, your book and especially that chapter, I, I was thinking about like people that I've known who have sort of gotten sucked into various like rabbit holes and, you know, where they start to think, you know, like uh, what's Travis, what's his name? The, in, in De Niro. Travis Bickle. Yeah. And then like taxi driver that, that somehow like I individually can be like a first person shooter video game. Like I can be the hero of this story and I can kind of rescue you know, the society by doing this thing, right? And like, like it's, but what in that chapter, I think very much your, your powers of, a, you know, being somebody who's written in a number of different genres, including like novels, right? So you can really see, yeah. you can really see in that chapter that you're, you know, one of your various hats that you wear is, is as a novelist, because it's very creepy. It, it's very real. Like, it, like for instance, I was comparing to, you know, in, David Frum sometimes when he tries to sort of like sketch out a character and what their motivations, it's a little, it's kind of stiff and wooden and you can tell that like he's out of his, he's out of his element. He's like, he, does, he, does, he doesn't really know how to do that genre very well, but you do. And so in that chapter, you really kind of like feel like when you're reading, you know, Underground Man, uh, you know, notes from the underground from Dostoevsky, like you really feel like, you're seeing the world through this assassin's eyes and like how he rationalizes what he's doing and how he rationalizes. But you know, the, the creepiest thing in that chapter is how people respond to it. Right. So it's not, it's not, yes, uh, it's exactly. not like JFK or Lincoln or, you know, various other, I mean, America's had numerous assassinations and assassination attempts and it tends to be this like, everybody stops what they're doing and feels really horrible. And it's like national mourning. Yeah. And you, you say like, yeah. uh, that would not be the case. And, and I love that the, the little aside where you sort of like break the, you know, the, the sort of the fourth wall and you say like, yeah. And if you think you're above this, just imagine for a second how you would have felt if like Trump was assassinated, like while he was yes. president. Well, exactly. Would right? you have been really sad? Yeah. Eh. You know, so, um, I mean, I, well, here, I think we would, we just would have, like, it's not our country. He was just an enemy of our country. We would have just danced in the streets. Right. Like, I don't think like it, it, it's kind of, it, it's not even like for us, it would just be good news if Trump were killed. Right. Like, it's not, it, like, it's not, uh, he, he's just a, he's just an enemy, but, um, but like, it's for America, like the problem is he was, the outgoing presidents are now presidents of other countries. And that's really the problem. Yeah. Like they, they, they feel under occupation because they are under occupation. And, you know, it's just too, and that's why, you know, when that happens, it's time to talk about exit strategies here. 
Yeah. I mean, I would know, I definitely, I, I could not stand Trump from start to finish, but like, I, I would not have celebrated if he was assassinated even for a second. And, and the reason is that I just don't, I just, you know, I, I know enough about human history to know that like, once you go down that road, it's really hard to get off it. And so like, if, if, if you start to get oh, political yeah. violence, it spirals and it normalizes all sorts of like really fucked up shit. And so like, I would not, you know, I wouldn't celebrate that at all. And, um, it's, but yeah, no, I, I get, I get your point. And it is actually a really, you know, when it's kind of normalized that, you know, a member of Congress can jokingly post like a video where he's decapitating, uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and like that, this is like a joke and it's funny. I mean, that's just, what the fuck you, like, it it it's yeah. really crazy, you know, and and I think a lot of people imagine that it's this. Um, I I don't know. I think it it seems like a game to a lot of people, because they haven't experienced like actual violence and how how destabilizing that is. You know that the, it just seems like a joke to them very often. I I don't know, but I guess that's that's always the case. I think that's probably uh, that was that's probably been the case. Like you know, throughout human history that whenever things break down, uh, people who were just playing, I mean, I, one of the things I loved in that show Homeland was the, the sort of the Alex Jones character, uh, who has this podcast right. and kind of like whips people into a frenzy. And then you realize at a certain point, you know, when he goes and sees this militia group and like the teenage boy has got, you know, his Alex Jones tattoo on his arm. And like, you know, he realizes suddenly, Oh my God, all these people actually are taking me seriously. Like I, they really like, and then he goes to the shooting range and he shoots a gun and like immediately like the kickback, like flies right up into his face and smacks him <laughs> in the forehead. And you realize this motherfucker has never shot a gun in his life. And his whole entertain, his whole brand is all about like, how he's this big second amendment like warrior fighting for the right to bear arms. And like, he just has no real experience with guns or violence. It's all just, you know, like you said, theology, it's like, it's, you know, it's it, 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 very abstract. Right. So I wonder what happens yeah. when all of this stuff, when this shit becomes real, um, how do you think it, you know, what's going to happen? Well, I mean, I think uh, already there's a kind of rise of political violence. Like Ca Capitol Police since January 6th have reported 107% increase in threats to Congress people. So, I mean, I think the most immediate thing is the rise of the normalization of political violence um, on a direct level, which, you know, you don't really have to predict that. That's sort of already happened. Um, and, you know, from from that, like when political violence starts to become normal and the system becomes illegitimate, uh, you know, really only radical political situations, you know, solutions kind of present themselves. So, yeah, like, I think we're all like, like I think what the first thing will be that political violence will become normal in America, much the way that school shootings are normal in America now. Like it's, it, it will, it will just become part of the background of life. Um, and the fact that the, I mean, already, the idea that people are threatened out of being in politics is totally normal. 
like that's I think it was like one third of polling people in uh, in the United States and it felt threatened, and then they had a huge resignation from it. So you're already seeing like violence affect the political process, and that's just going to rise for a long time because you know as as we've seen, it's very effective. Hmm. But I mean, do you think because you know when I see like for instance, there was this big anti-vax kind of anti you know, lockdown, anti all this stuff, like movement, and they had a protest and they they actually ended up coming right down our street on Laval Avenue, you know, right here in, in Montreal. Mm-hmm. And I what amazed me is that these protesters, almost all of their signs and slogans were in English, even though they were like Francophones. And so clearly these are people who've been radicalized by the internet. By you know, it's like right. it's like you've said you know a number of times, and there was that that wonderful. I I really think Stephen, it's like one of your best ever, where you talked about like you drew upon your history as like a sort of a Renaissance early modern guy, and you said like yeah, the the invention of the printing press uh, did all these like wonderful things, and it spread literacy and ideas about science and democracy and all stuff, but it also you know. <laughs> Like spread like fucking witch burning and all these like horrible, horrible things were spread by it too. It caused like massive, you know, religious wars and all these things. Uh, but it was so clear to me, like literally this movement coming down my street and it was so obvious to me that they had not been radicalized. This was not grassroots. This was not like something coming from no, no. from Quebec indigenous. This was something that had come to them no. through the internet and the thing is, is, you see the same thing in, you know, I was talking to the philosopher Susan Nyman, who's living in, in Berlin, and she said, yeah, it's the same thing. You see these, like, crazy kind of, like, street movements in in Germany, and they're, like, they have English slogans that they've got from the internet, right? That they're, so, I mean, how does this factor into this? Well, and they're also playing this? to that audience, right? They're, they're trying to put, like, it's for an audience, right? And they're trying to get onto Fox News, right? Yeah. So there's, yeah, it, 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 it's very much a, uh, I mean, I don't know if you'd call it global, but yeah, they're, like, like it's, all a, it's all a feedback loop of kind of entertainment, right? Like angry forms of entertainment. I mean, the information networks are much more broken in America than they are anywhere else, but they are broken everywhere else. Although I find, you know, the anti-vax rallies that I've been to here, I mean, the pain on the looks of people's faces, it's like, it's, it's go, it's haunting, you know, like these are, these are some hurt people. Like it's like, don't get me wrong. I'm very angry with them, but you know, there's a lot of pain there too. And what do you think the pain is from? Well, I do remember reading that the strongest correlation of voting in Trump was physical pain. Like, like, like that people who had chronic pain and like, like I think there's, I mean, in America, there, you have to understand there's a huge number of people who literally have nothing. They're like an army of the dispossessed. And they, like, by nothing, I mean they don't have access to education. They don't have access to health care. They don't really own anything. Uh, like, and they have no, like, they're just, they're just dust, like human dust moving along the road. And, uh, you know, that, and those, those are huge groups of people. Um, in a way that, you know, no other Western democracy has anything remotely similar. So, you know, I think that's a big part. Although, you know, I don't really 
think economic motives are a good explanation for American populism. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of pain in America, like a huge amount of it. There's a, like either just from, you know, like if you think about it's a very punishing society in many ways, right? Like there's, if you get caught up in the legal system, it just chews you up. Like it's, it's very, it's very brutal in, in, in many, in many aspects when it's very unclear why it's brutal. Um, but it, it is brutal. It's not, it's not very nice to be like a loser, you know, in the States, like if you're a winner, if you're doing really, really well, uh, if you're, you know, you're very healthy, you're very mentally healthy, you're very kind of like you have good connections and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can do very, very well. Uh, but if you're in any way, if you've got like, you know, learning disabilities or mental health problems or physical problems or like, it's pretty harsh, you know, and that's, that's, uh, I don't, I don't know, you know, I, I wonder if it's always, because it, it seems to me like different parts of the United States have, uh, have, have different sort of impulses and intuitions about this. Like if you go to Vermont, for instance, right? Like you go to any, like, I'm sure you've had this experience. We, we have it all the time whenever we go down to the States, but like you're driving to Vermont and you stop off at like one of the, the little like, you know, drop off and they, they give you like free coffee and they like free and there's all these people there, like, to try and help you. And if you stop off in a town, everybody, they seem to very much want to kind of help each other out. It's a very kind of Canadian, it, you know, in that respect. Like, it seems very, like, like on our street, for instance, and this is sort of very typical Canadian kind of thing where, you know, when it snows, if people don't have, like, older people or people with limited kind of mobility and, and capabilities, like, people will just go and, like, shovel their stairs and their walk and their front area just you know while they're doing their own like they just know like oh yeah she can't do hers so i'll do it for her and everybody right. that's just understood like i you know i got up this morning yeah. and did i did an hour and a half of shoveling this morning and i shoveled out you know and if 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 my back was out and i was like my i don't know i was not able to do that one of my other neighbors would i know like would would do that for me because they have in the past and it's just and nobody expects a thanks for it it's just like oh yeah we have to take care of each other like because we're but i think americans are more like that than we are i think they're more generous and really and they're more polite i i think so yeah i mean they're definitely more polite that's for sure (laughs) but i live in montreal so Well, I mean, we have manners, but we all know what we're saying to each other, right? Like, I mean, it seems polite if you're from another country, but we all know what we're like. When you say sorry to somebody, that means <laughs> fuck you. Why are you in my face? Like, we all know what that means. Like, I, like, I, I mean, I, I, like, I think, you know, it really is. This book is written out of, you know, out of love for America, for sure. Uh, like, the, the, it's not, it's not them that's the problem. It's their systems. Right. Like it's, and you know, I, I don't know, like I even found like, I like talking to Oath Keepers. I mean, I probably shouldn't admit that, but like, I always, like, I always got along with them very well. It's just, you know, they want to end democracy. Right. And some of them want to establish white ethno states in the Pacific Northwest. So it, like, it's, it, it's the, 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 um, I don't think, 
I, I certainly don't think Canadians are better people than I, I know we're not better people than Americans. I know we're not. Um, the, but our, but you know, the systems that we have in place, I think because, you know, partly because of the weather and partly because of history and partly because of our colonial past, um, like we're more willing to accept government as a, as a reality. Um, you know, are, are working much better, but there, you know, I, like, I don't know. I, I think, um, like there's, there's, there's something, the failing is not in themselves. It's in, it's in their system. It's in their, it's in their way of, of government for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I get very sort of Jared Diamond-y like when, when people get into veer into this territory, because like, I actually do think, and I know you think this too, cause you've, address these themes in, in some of your writing and definitely in your novel, um, The Hunger of the Wolf, uh, but that that geography is to some extent destiny in the sense that like, you know, John Wilson Saul in his like book, um, I think it's in like Reflections of a Siamese Twin or A Fair Country, one of those two, but like he jokes about how like Henry David Thoreau's Walden could only be written in like a very temperate climate, you know, in Massachusetts where, where you have like previous humans, most of them indigenous, by the way, um, have killed off all the large predators that would have liked to fucking eat you and have like incredibly like domesticated the landscape like crazy. And then you can have these like crazy libertarian fucking jerk off wet dreams about how like, Oh, I'm just this individual who could go off in a cabin and just contemplate the universe and yeah. fuck the government and fuck all society. I think when you live farther north or if you live in a desert like in in, in kind of North Africa or the Middle East or you know there's many places like when you live in a more harsh environment you just you just can't take illusions like that seriously because like I know. I, I know so I know in my bones like first thing in the morning and like the last moment before I fall asleep, I know in my bones that I desperately need my community to survive. Like I need other yeah. people. I need people to care about me and to have my back and to do things for me. I need other people so much. I can't just sort of have these illusions of like being an island and it's like me and Annalisa and like our kids and like our friends and fuck everybody else. I got my guns. I got my fucking freezer filled with meat and I'm good, man. I'm good. You know, I got my PPE and I've got my, like, I, I think those kinds of kind of prepper illusions just, they just fall flat here. Yeah, they don't, they don't. Well, also I think things like, you know, there's not a lot of Canadians who believe in like, colonizing mars it's like have you tried living in winnipeg like winnipeg's not like winnipeg's like winnipeg's like barely doable like just barely doable right and why we're not going to mars you know know, apparently grimes actually grimes actually apparently said that to elon musk at one point she said like you're all into mars but have you ever tried to like you know, get, you know, survive a winter in like Winnipeg or in, like, in, North, in Northern right. Canada. Like it's, it's like, it's very hard. It's very, very hard to do that. Like, and, and no one who's done it would think, Hey, you know what? Let's make this even harder. Yeah. Like, let's like, like, let's try to, let's try to make this harder. Like, no, like just only people in California dream of space travel because everything's easy in California. 
You step outside your front door. It's beautiful. You know, you play softball, whatever you want. Yeah. Well, I, I remember being in, you know, I guess this is, I was like 18, 19. And the first time I went to Vancouver and I ended up like spending, you know, much longer there than I had planned on. And, uh, and I slept in Stanley park and I slept and I had all these, like, I fell in with these different groups of people and like couch surfing and having all these adventures and stuff like that. But I remember just being amazed that, you know, I was like, oh, no wonder there's so many homeless people and so many like kind of, because you can actually, you know, humans killed off almost all. I mean, there's still like sort of mountain lions and, and bears and stuff like that here and there. But for the most part, the large predators are all gone and it's a very tamed environment and it's quite temperate. So you can like fall asleep on a street and like wake up the next day and sober up and get on with your life. I had, you know, one of my first roommates when I moved out here in Montreal, uh, he was a really hardcore alcoholic and uh, he passed out in a snowbank and almost died. Like he had like frostbite, right. like, and like you can't fuck around you know, when you're in, like, when you're in a more kind of extreme yeah. ecosystem, like where nature is not your friend, you know, it, nature is not like your like loving grandmother who wants to like bake you cookies and give you a hug. Like she's trying to fucking kill you. Like, so you, I think you just have a more realistic assessment of what is politically possible. And you realize that you really do need other people and you need to have a high degree of cooperation in order to like make yeah. this thing work. That's the garrison mentality. I think it's totally true. So garrison mentality, that's the way you, you would sort of. Yeah. Well, it's Northrop Fry. That's what Northrop Fry called it. Okay. And uh, yeah. And I, I think that's, I think that's exactly, I mean, for good and ill, right. They're good. There are good things about it and they're bad things about it. We do take care of each other, but we're also kind of, you know, a fearful, right? Fearful of other things, fearful of difference, fearful, like, and, and less willing to dream, right? I mean, everything comes with a cost. Everything has a cost and a benefit. Yeah. Well, I'd, I want to sort of finish off with this question because this is something I was uh, talking to Nassim Nicholas Taleb about, and it's, uh, it, he said, you know, like where he's from, Lebanon, he had to flee because of the Civil War, uh, he said, you know, Lebanon was stable for, you know, more or less stable for hundreds and hundreds of years. Like, you know, probably depending upon how yeah. you want to count it, like about 800 years, it was, you know, Jews, Christians, Muslims of various flavors uh, were able to kind of find a way to like get along with each other. And and ha they had a high degree of stability, so much so that they came to think of their stability as just a given that we don't have to. Yeah, you know, and and so his point was, um, yeah, you know, you can have these black swan events, you can have these kind of random things that something that seemed so stable. So the United States, which has been um, stable, you know, more or less stable for quite a long time, uh, people aren't ready, you know, for for it to fall apart. But but his point was, generally speaking, when people prophesy some sort of horrible result it usually comes from one of two places it's like either that you kind of really want it to happen like you're kind of like this is like a revenge fantasy of yours or which is yeah. i think your book is in the latter category which is you prophesy some 
horrible possibility. Not because you're, you know, jerking off to this or you're like excited by this. It's because you, you really would like to, like it to not happen, right? So, I mean, I get the feeling that you very much are sort of prophesying this because you really would like it to not happen. I mean, anyway. So, what, oh what, what God, do you think yeah. about that? I, I like, hope, I hope, I hope for sure that it doesn't happen. I mean, God willing, this book will be like, wow, was that guy so wrong? I mean, that would be the that would be the best case scenario for every for. I mean. Yeah, like no, no one. The consequences of America falling apart are extremely grave for the whole world. I mean, they are, they have been the linchpin of de- you know global democracy for a hundred years. So yeah, like a, a civil war in the United States is a straight up disaster, catastrophe for everyone involved. Not, I mean, not just the not just the violence, but the but the which is horrible in itself, but the political fallout, which will be monstrous. I mean, I do believe it's coming. I I don't like I do think and you know, since I this this all came from a piece I wrote, you know, four years ago, right? And it's only it's definitely at that time it was hard to sell people on this idea. It's not hard to sell them on it anymore. Right. Like it's, it's becoming clearer and clearer every day that this is happening. Um, and, and, you know, it's no longer a projection. It's sort of incipient, but yeah, like I would love it if, you know, somehow I was totally wrong and they actually came up with a perfectly reasonable solution. I just, I just literally can't see how that would happen. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't look like it. Cause as you, as you say in the book, uh, Joe Biden is exactly the sort of leader that, that should be able to broker this kind of a piece and it's not happening, right? It's not working. Yeah. There's no, there's no, no, no. They get it just, and you know, I don't think Trump, like Trump is kind of a red herring too. Like, I think they're like, what you have are two groups that really don't want to, that really hate each other and don't believe the other side is legitimate. And so when when you reach that point, like the, 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 the solutions are all bad. Like the, like the, 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 the exits are all bad. One of them, I think the, the, the best case scenario is separation because that involves some, but that requires serious goodwill and negotiation. Like when Czechoslovakia split up, like that was, they, they were in, they were, they liked each other. Right. So they were able to negotiate some, a, a sensible arrangement for separation. But, you know, increasingly, I don't think there, there's just so much hatred from the top down. Like, you know, they're and they're pouring f- more fuel on the f- fire all the time. Right. Like the, the like the, the violent talk just go, gets gets is getting more and more extreme. So I don't, I don't know how it how it ends without some kind of some kind of conflict. Yeah. And how do you, I, you know, I just, I gotta, I gotta attack this on at the end. How do you think that, you know, the whole like kind of COVID thing it plays into this? Because I, I know that for, for me, I noticed, you know, that there's this big disconnect between the way that I'm addressed in French and the way that I'm addressed in English. So in, in French, you know, my, my premier here in Quebec, you know, say what you will about, about his his problems and i i definitely you know i'm not a not a big fan but uh but i just feel like when he talks to me about like covid stuff i just feel like i'm being talked to by another adult who's like taking me seriously and he's been saying yes. he's been saying the whole time like well you know uh uh how, how do you say that uh, he's like basically like 
you know, if we look at like pandemics in the past, they generally speaking are not a one-off. It's usually like you get one and then you get like another big one and another big one, another big one. Uh, that's been the case for most of human history. No reason to think this would not be the same. So we should basically be thinking in terms of a five, 10 year plan of like having like COVID-22, COVID-24, COVID-26. And we should like get these systems in place so that we have things like ready to go, depending upon what the, and he's been saying that from the beginning, like all the time. So when we heard, heard about like Omicron and things like that, we're like, all right, okay. So maybe we have to like, think about what we're going to do next semester and like maybe we'll have to like go to online teaching and stuff like that it was just like oh yeah okay fine but there's a totally different conversation that's happening in english <laughs> like and it's and it seems like it could be one of the things that tips off the civil war you're talking about because people are so frustrated and they've been told that okay this is just a one off when you know, any epidemiologist will tell you that that's never been the fucking case. Like that's, you know, even this, what's called the Spanish flu, right? There was like one big one and then there was an, another one in 1919 and then another one in 1920. Like they, they always serve like a rock skipping on a river. There's always like, you know, a couple versions of it, you know, but what, what do you think about that? Well, I think, you know, in Canada, when we talk to our politicians about COVID, it's about policy. So some of our politicians, they make, they make the best policies they can. Sometimes they're wrong. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're terribly wrong, like with Jason Kenney, and they're wrong over and over again, like Kenney. Um, and they'll be punished for it, for their performance on policy or rewarded for it, uh, depending on it. In America, the, the politics long ago trumped any kind of policy, right? Like they, like it, it is this theological thing where, you know, COVID is not about COVID. It's about, you know, freedom, right? And that's why people get assaulted for wearing masks in grocery stores in Wyoming, right? Because like it becomes a symbol of your not lack of dedication to freedom. But it, it it's um like it, it's 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 you know, so there I think like that just highlights just how different the debate is. Like it, it's just transmuted into something that is not is not about, uh, you know, it's not about like, how do we survive COVID? How do we get through this together? It's really about, um, I believe in freedom. You don't. And, and then that, and, and so whenever, when literally a plague isn't enough to shake you out of this, you know, this messianic politics, what will? Yeah. That, that's such a good point. Because I, I remember having the same thought when I was reading Stephen Harper's book uh, right here, right now, where he talks about how, you know, in theory, you know, what you're talking like the theological level, he was totally like, let's get rid of all these banking regulations. Let's like get rid of these walls between like, you know, various kinds of parts of the financial industry and everything. And then, you know, the crash happened and he saw. Yeah. And, like, like, and, nope. they, and he was like. Oh fuck. Um okay, no. Um let's keep all of our Canadian banking regulations because we're the only yeah. G7 country that didn't get fucked in the ass by like this this horrible financial crisis. So like clearly um this actually works. So what he did there is exactly what you're talking about. He went and changed his theory as a result of experience. 
Like he said, okay, like I, you know, I have my like, which is exactly what you think a conservative would do, right? Like a, a kind of a Burkean conservative. We're vulnerable as a country. Yeah, we're responsible. Like we're 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 a we're a vulnerable country. Like if we if a bank goes down in this country, we're done. You know, like which isn't true for America. And so, like we like caution is is warranted. For, for us. And you can tell that in our politicians. Like they, they also know that Canadians who are much better educated than Americans, um, you know, like are, will respond to reasonable policies. Like, you know, we have our disagreements, but like, you know, we all know that the Quebec premier is making policies and that we're going to judge him on those policies. He's not going to suddenly say, well, actually this is all about freedom. He just got laughed out of the province. Yes. Right. Like we like like no one would no one would whereas the the governor of Florida that's what he does so you know like it's uh, it's just a different framework yeah well I think the more the more you know about any topic you know like I I remember like having I'm sure you heard this too in grad school but like profs say like you know the the less you know about a topic the easier it is to teach the intro class you know because like. You, you know, like the more that, you know, the more you realize that the general statements are like largely bullshit. Right. And the theory and the, the, what you call the theology, the theology level is like mostly bullshit. Right. So if you actually know more, it just makes you a little bit more kind of cautious and humble. And you're like, "Eh, well, you know, yeah. And so it, Maybe, you know, part of the reason why they're speaking and, you know, I, I really like that you say it's theology. That's very like sort of Yuval Noah Harari, actually. Like Harari's whole point is like you talk about theology like when you don't really have any concrete data points to talk about something. Like you you, you have recourse to these grand narratives precisely when you don't really know what you're talking about. And it's like a, a kind of right. – an allergic reaction to reality or something like that. I, th- I think that's very, very good. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So where do you, you know, what is your kind of your next big project? What is your, your next thing? That, I mean, I know you always have like a lot of different things going on, but what is your next big writing project? Well, I'm doing some stuff on a artificial intelligence for a bunch of magazines. I'm getting really, fascinated but i've been working on that for quite a while but i've got some new stuff coming on that and i think uh next year or in a year and a half or so i'm going to have a book coming out with biblioasis on um writing and failure so i'm kind of doing that now and it's it's pretty interesting writing and failure like what, what do you mean like yeah like personal failure or like failure as well but all of the above like failure like how how failure shapes people's writing and 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 the history of writing and how people write out of failure and what failure means when you're writing and how it's sort of the basic condition of writing. Wow. So that would be everything from Dante's divine you know, comedy to like Boethius and to, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, wow, that's rich. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, almost, it is a rich vein. Yeah. yeah. It'll be a good little essay, I think. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. And uh, thank you for, producing all of these fantastic writings uh, you know as i've said to you before privately and i'll say it publicly uh you actually like a, like a really good pair of glasses or you help me to see the world more clearly like i feel more 
conscious and Thank more you. aware and that's more, a very nice compliment and uh and i really appreciate that and it's um it's you know the, the older i get the more i really just love you know somebody who can or or, or just help me see things more clearly you know because consciousness is really kind of all that we have right i mean when we die that's what's gone right yes, so indeed but uh yeah i i appreciate your uh enlightenment <laughs> so anyway have uh have a wonderful holiday and um i thanks buddy you i too. hope i hope you i hope book, that, i hope yeah i hope your book hope, sells like crazy and I hope it's totally wrong. It's always great to talk to you. <laughs> all, yeah, I hope it's wrong too. I genuinely do. It'd be great if it's like suddenly it's like, I, oh I, no, it's I know, I know you do. Republicans all. <laughs> yeah, it'd be it'd be great. Yeah. All right. All right. You. Always great to talk to you. Take man. care, brother. Right. Bye.